Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac here today with a super exciting episode. And you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Thanks, he's so good at reading. I didn't do too well. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content-focused or uh, specific goals of the podcast to our Patreon in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. That's also my line. But we have started up a Patreon-only series called The Prologues, and during which we will do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things, not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of the podcast. Societal collapse and reconstruction and things like that. So here's a quick clip of what we're doing on the Patreon-only section, and I hope you enjoy it. Basically, his observation led to the emergence of the fruit wall, which is what we kind of glossed over at the beginning, but that's what brought it to northern France, England, Belgium, and the Netherlands, was uh, his experiment or his observation of his experiments in 1561. I just wanted to get that point in there just because it was a name drop, and I feel like you got to give credit where credit's due. If people are going to hear their shit, and hear Paul Pearl's Almanac and the prologues and stuff, I hope they drop my name, my name's Elliot, and say, like, he did it. Rather than just gloss over it and be like, that shit never really existed, it wasn't important. If you're interested, and you're willing, to donate $2 to our Patreon, go ahead and sign up for that, and that's super cool, and you'll get more stuff like you just heard, and we hope to keep doing that, because that's super fun, we like it. It's way more laid back and relaxed, don't you think? Yeah. Um, so on top of this content, we've got stickers and some other footage available from Andy's farm. And we're putting the theory to work in practice and, uh, or at least trying to anyway. We're not just getting drunk running around his backyard, I promise. Not always. Not, yes. Anyway, <laughs> while we do enjoy there's making- some stories. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode. So any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out on Patreon, and uh, we're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We got memes and uh, more memes and pictures of Andy's animals sometimes. Yeah, and uh, we also have one of our Patreons actually started a Reddit subthread, subreddit. I, I don't know what Reddit things are called, but there's, there's one for the Poor Pearls Almanac, and we visit it occasionally, but there's a bunch of people over there that listen to the podcast and are left-leaning and kind of tired of the traditional homesteady prepper whatever type groups. So if you want to hang out with a bunch of lefties, it's a good place to go. One other thing we do have that we recently started is we created a Venmo account for the Porporal's Almanac. The goal of that was to give folks that they might just really enjoy one episode or two episodes and they're not Patreon people or they don't want to make a monthly contribution. They just want to give us a couple bucks because they really enjoyed one of the episodes. Think of it kind of like a tip jar. It's someplace to give us a few bucks. And Please say, give Thanks. us tips. I live off of tips. Thank you. <laughs> it's something that allows you to give us a little bit of support without feeling like you have to go through a monthly donation. So that's another way you can support us as well. And uh, if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to our first episode of the podcast because each episode springboards from the previous content. We like to try to frame up those conversations and overall scheme. And then each episode is sort of like a pushing the envelope a little bit further. Yeah, or whatever. Sure. A deep dive into specific topics. Yeah. Um, so our goal with this mini series in particular is a challenging one with a large question. I think that 
the left struggles with of how do we detangle colonization from agriculture when permaculture has such a problematic past and in many ways present. So recently we did an episode on the Havana urban farms that sprung up in response to the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it highlighted the the successes of decentralized urban agriculture, especially when it was supported by a collectivist sense of community building and ownership for a community. And what they're able to accomplish there is nothing short of amazing. And uh, if you're interested, that was our most recent episode. In this episode, we're going to be going in a little bit of a similar direction, but reimagining that within the United States. So in this episode, we're actually interviewing Malik Yakini, who is the executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. He's been involved in urban agriculture within the city of Detroit for a number of decades at this point. And uh, he took some time to chat with us about the role of urban agriculture in building community. It's a very interesting conversation. And what I want to do is talk about that history and pare it down to this conversation of the, the similarities that existed uh, within Havana, as well as the urban agriculture movement in cities across the United States, particularly Detroit, because of that extensive history of abandonment by the government. So I think this will be a really interesting episode. At the end of the 19th century, when Detroit was facing extreme food shortages, Mayor Hazen Pingree made it possible for residents to come together, helping each other provide for their families using the vacant land that surrounded them. This time of struggle and Pintree's plan would inspire later leaders of Detroit to look within the city for relief to economic problems. About 40 years later, after the Great Depression during the 1930s, history seemed to repeat itself when both unemployment and famine raged on. The mayor of Detroit at the time, Frank Murphy, looked upon its past to its answers. Turning to Mayor Pingree's program for inspiration, he formed the Thrift Garden Program. This program helped the residents turn to their surrounding land, and with the help of the city, residents started farming. If we jumped forward another 40 years, we find Mayor Coleman Young also looking upon Pingree's potato patches and thrift gardens of the past for inspiration with his Farm A Lot program. Again, if we fast forward another 40 years to where we are today, there's massive urban farming in the city of Detroit. There are now organizations like Keep Growing Detroit, which manages the Garden Resource Program, and other farming initiatives towards a goal of helping Detroiters grow fresh fruits and vegetables themselves. Over the years, the quote-unquote Motor City has turned to gardening when the economy has collapsed. Like I said, urban farming has been a large piece of the history of Detroit and can be traced back to 1894. And looking towards the immigrants within the community that had farming experience, they began to start uh, these urban farming projects in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Unsurprisingly, at that time when it first took off in the early 1900s, most rich people scoffed at the idea of urban farming and the city really had to look towards the residents themselves to try to build this program. So the mayor at the time started going to local churches, tried to convince them to start donating some money. Despite these churches supposedly representing the people of the city, they didn't seem very interested, and Pingree even actually ended up selling his own assets, including his uh, prized horse, which I'm not going to feel bad for him for selling a prized horse. But uh, he did so in order to start this program. So they began to split the parcels apart and offer them to residents through an application system. This allowed people to start growing potatoes, beans, and other vegetables to help supplement the foods that they could afford to get. 
the crops from the first year were valued at over $14,000 and yielded over 65,000 bushels of potatoes, which were the primary food that they grew because it's a starch that can store pretty well. The next year, the crops value doubled. Eventually, this became known as the, the Detroit model, which ended up being implemented across the entire country as an example of what urban farming could look like. And this is something that continued to happen, like I said, throughout the city's history, where they would develop these different urban farming methods. In the 30s, after the Great Depression, the mayor looked at what happened in the past and set up a similar system called the thrift gardens, which were structured so that more experienced farmers were placed in charge of the lesser experienced applicants. It was the experienced farmer's responsibility to lay out the design of garden beds and help the others by teaching them how to garden, and under their direction, these farms flourished. So this program continued through until the economy recovered after World War II. It kind of got swept into that craze of the Victory Garden and then went away at the same time as the Victory Gardens did. It kind of just got absorbed into that movement. But they were very successful and the thing that drove them to be so successful was that the teaching methodology where experienced people would teach the younger farmers or people that wanted to learn how to farm the process of doing it and giving that guidance. There's a direct sense of community ownership, which is what we saw in Havana when you had these different specialists and botanists that would go into communities to teach people how to grow food. And then eventually the government gave them full reins to do that and um, guide the people so that they could learn how to grow their own food. So I feel like that's um, a perfect example of putting down roots and quite literally getting the fruits of your labor. Self-determination. Self-determination and um, understanding that where you live is your home and this is how you're going to provide for yourself, right? Yeah, and it, it worked. And uh, like I said, the, this was a built model that was built upon a previous model, which had already been hugely successful. So it, it ended up disappearing after World War II. We didn't see anything really spring up until the 1970s. All right. So in 1974, urban farming was in the spotlight again in the city of Detroit. Coleman Young had started the Farm-A-Lot program, and the program had two goals. The first of which was to help eliminate blight throughout the city, and the second was to encourage citizens to grow some of their own food. So if a resident wanted to start their own garden project, they would call the city, who would supply the residents with vegetable seeds and flower seeds, and each resident applicant would then be assigned a lot. There were said to be around 3,000 lots available, but this time around, farming wasn't as popular and only a fraction of the lots were used. So I think the most obvious thing that's different this time around is the fact that there didn't seem to be much guidance in terms of enrollment of experienced farmers or anything like that. So during the mid-1990s, inspired by the Farm-A-Lot program, the Detroit Agriculture Network, a group of nonprofit organizations, saw the benefit of the urban gardening within the city and looked towards the future of farming in Detroit. So Dan, we'll call it Detroit Agriculture Network, was able to obtain government grants like the Community Foods Project Competitive Grant Program, or the CFP-CGP, Thanks just to, rolls off the tongue. It's so so many letters. So official. Thanks to the 1996 Farm Bill, which is what put the CFPCGP into play. Again, rolls off the tongue. Oh my God, it's so... I hate it. Smooth. So, what this did, it would allow Dan to grow and help to get another urban gardening initiative on its feet in the early 2000s. And the organization would be known as the Garden Resource Program. So, the GRP more acronyms, has been 
the GRP, has been the mother of many different gardening programs in Detroit and acting much like the more experienced gardeners in the thrift garden project of the 1930s, the GRPs helped from other farmers, which knew what they were doing, setting up other farms and maximizing their yields. So that totally helped out a little bit more and gave them that helping hand that was missing in the earlier projects. So the point is that I think urban agriculture has been a key component of Detroit over a number of years. And despite the fact that I think we always look at things as being new, this is actually just something old that's coming back. You could even call it primal. I mean, people need food to exist. And when times get tough, the thing that you need to do to ensure your existence is make sure you have food. Yeah. And if you, the system that you live in isn't providing that for you, then guess what you got to do? You got to get, get some seeds. Oh, yeah, gotta, that too. <laughs> get a gun. <laughs> I mean, I got to get some gun he's, seeds. He's, he's, going, he's going to plan Z. No, first <laughs> you get some seeds, you get some topsoil. You start and you you put down your roots. That's what you got to do if that's what you have to do. Yeah. Right? So to fast forward to our conversation with Malik, in 2008, with thousands of people moving out of Detroit, homes being foreclosed and lost in the housing crisis, Detroit and the rest of the country were facing an economic crisis as capitalism tends to do. In 2013, Detroit had to file for bankruptcy and the future looked pretty bleak. However, in the background of this despair, there was that garden resource program, which was still going strong and helping reshape the way residents think about food. All around Detroit, urban farmers are challenging the conventional rules of farming. In Detroit's Brightmoor district, vertical farming is taking off. The city's urban gardening initiative is not limited to outdoor spaces, and there are some surprising experiments taking place within the city. Unsurprisingly, the food projects in Detroit aren't just focused on sellable products from an entrepreneurship perspective, but more focused on this idea of community building projects. So we've talked about the idea of agrihoods in the past, primarily in the context of like suburbia, where people have lots of commonly sized front yards and things like that, that already are usually with good topsoil and often have access to water very easily and utilizing those for growing fresh food. In this case, this has played out in some capacity in Detroit's North End neighborhood, where community utilization of traditional yard space has been utilized for food production, called the Michigan Urban Farming Initiative, a.k.a. MUFI. So yeah, MUFI, Michigan Urban Farming Initiative. Co-founder Tyson Dirsch said at the time, and quote, Over the last four years, we've grown from an urban garden that produces fresh produce for our residents to a diverse agricultural campus that has helped sustain the neighborhood, attract new residents, and area investment, end quote. They've received corporate support from Target and General Motors, as well as others. The three-acre farm that they run is focused on food insecurity in the community and returning community ownership to the historical black neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. This is done not just by having property ownership rates at over 30% for black residents, but also by driving the food production not based on profitability, but culturally relevant foods, such as hot peppers and, well, hot peppers and hot peppers. Hot peppers and hot peppers. (laughs) Such as hot peppers, with the goal of starting cooperative businesses based on the fruit of the community gardens, quite literally trying to create things like hot sauces for selling. Made with hot peppers. Yes. Hot peppers and hot peppers. What's a hot pepper? It's a hot pickle. It's a hot pickles. Is it like mayonnaise? Is it spicy as mayonnaise? Wait, what are we talking about? Hot peppers? I thought you said something spicy, so I said mayonnaise. Hot pepper. Mayonnaise. God damn it, white boy. 
So last, and in my opinion, most significantly, is that Mufi has made an explicit point to collectivize the fruits of their labors. That produce is free for everyone. Just acknowledge. Yeah. It's almost like this idea of collective ownership is a good thing. It's cool as hell. Mufi isn't the only organization in Detroit challenging the economics of modern urban agriculture. Oakland Avenue Urban Farm, also located in the North End, allows for public investment through volunteer hours and farm labor. And the organization sells products made from their produce. Their focus is on building community around food through various dinners, public gatherings, and essentially anything that will bring people to, to the table, literally and figuratively. Uh, end quote. The Oakland Avenue Corridor was important to Detroit, where black entrepreneurship prospered. It is important to have space that is for the community and they could feel connected to it, said Jerry Ann Hebron, the executive director. So yeah, the Oakland Avenue Corridor has historically been kind of the black the center of cultural power for the African-American community in Detroit. So I think this idea is that they want to reclaim ownership of it, but at the same time, kind of, I wouldn't say ignoring the shackles of capitalism, because that's not really accurate, but I guess proving that they can exist in the marketplace without having to sell out to capitalism. While it's, you know, it's not a, a, you know, a silver bullet or anything, I think it is important to just show that an alternative is possible. I will say that black owned businesses and things like that um, have always had their place in American history. Um, you can take a look at, I mean, we've referenced Black Wall Street and all sorts of things like that, but it does have its place rooted in Detroit because it's a historically black city and most likely will always be. And um, As long as it doesn't gentrify too much. I mean... It's always a possibility. This is America. It could. They have that hockey team. They do. Yeah. So <laughs> so we interviewed Malik, as we said, and he, while he also has the role, the executive director role, he also uh, manages what's called D-Town Farm, which is the largest of Detroit's gardens and farms. The seven acre farm grows more than 30 different fruits, vegetables, and herbs, which are sold at local farmers markets and wholesale customers at the farm. So we, we sat down with him for a little bit to chat regarding this conversation and uh, how he views the role of urban agriculture in building community and essentially challenging the system that exists around us, what that future holds, not just in terms of the modern understanding of what Detroit is, but in terms of what Detroit can be. And um, it was an interesting conversation. So I've really struggled to frame up this conversation on D-Town Farm because of this interview. And what's made it so special is the community involvement within this project. So not only is it the largest project within the city, which um, employs five people and hosts up to 50 volunteers weekly, it's been operational for over 15 years and is run by the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which he is the executive director of as well as, like I said, managing D-Town Farms. The, the project doesn't just run with the goal of providing local, healthy, affordable food, but also with a direct focus on, in his words, in quote, fostering self-determination, end quote. This involves educating people not on the food they grow, but on the food systems, building youth development, and ultimately food justice under capitalism. 
The Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is affiliated with D-Town Farms and Malik is a coalition of organizations and individuals working together to build food security in Detroit's black community by influencing public policy, promoting urban agriculture, encouraging cooperative buying, promoting healthy eating habits, facilitating mutual support and collective action among members, and lastly, encouraging young people to pursue careers in agriculture. They also plan crop plantings by committee, which allows for innovative suggestions and direct democratic participation in the process. DBCFSN strives to take a more enlightened approach to the issue of food access, moving beyond mere access to empowerment, but ownership. In addition to bringing crops to local farmers markets, they educate the youth about healthy eating and exercise their Food Warriors Development Program and run a food co-op buying club that offers its members discounted prices for quality food items. They also participate in the Detroit Food Policy Council, a group committed to establishing and maintaining a localized food system and ensuring food security in the city. So anyways, hopefully you guys enjoy this interview. And if you do, like we said, um, you can throw us a couple bucks on Venmo if you really appreciate it and just want to treat it like a tip jar. Uh, Additionally, you can join us on Patreon and support our content that way. Fuck all the money stuff. Give us a review on Apple iTunes and review us like a motherfucker because we want people to find this podcast and listen to it a little bit more. See if we can uh, get some of those reviews out there. So if you do enjoy the content, please just give us a couple stars or maybe five and tell us how you enjoyed the episodes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this. You've been in so uh, so many different areas in terms of education, food growing, small business, public policy, advocacy, all these different things that kind of tie together and um, kind of it all kind of spring, uh, springs back to this idea of localizing the democratic process and um, creating these things like direct committees to elect the crops that you're growing and things like that. Can you give me an idea of where this idea of this direct participatory democracy really uh, came from? Sure. Um, So let me begin by giving uh, honor to my ancestors or whose shoulders I stand, and I'll I'll just leave it at that. So for, for all of my adult life, I've been an activist of sorts. I had the opportunity in 1969 to hear Malcolm X record that changed my life. So since that time, you know, I've been working in various capacities in the black community, trying to build power, trying to uh, create a situation where black people have more control over shaping our destiny. And so for me to work in the food sphere is just an extension of that. And so the whole, you know, the whole liberation project, if you want to call it that, is about uh, Black people really having sovereignty over our own lives, having the ability to shape what our future looks like. And so, you know, there's various terms to describe that, self-determination, people's democracy. And and I I try not to get real hung up on terms, you know, but whatever, you know, however we want to describe this idea of the people themselves being able to envision what's in their own best interest and then creating that future as opposed to having reality imposed on us by some wealthy white dudes, you know, are trying to figure out how to amass more power for themselves. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what the ideas are rooted in. They're rooted in the whole, in the black liberation movement, frankly, they're rooted in the whole 
desire to have um, sovereignty and control of our communities uh, as a people. Sure. And you can't do that. Um, it's not as easy as going out to just get a job um, and work your way or you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is a saying that gets thrown around a lot. You started from the ground up quite literally. Um, did you have any background in gardening and with plants or how did you get into the food sector as opposed to trying to start somewhere else? Yeah, you know, I ask myself that question a lot. I, I think that I think that I was destined to do it. Let me start by saying that. But I look at some experiences early in my life, like uh, being in my grandfather's garden with him. He lived in Detroit. He was from Georgia, but moved to Detroit in the 1920s. A lot like my family. And that was really my first exposure to gardening. And I never gardened with him, but I would walk through the garden with him. And he did it, you know, regularly. But I think it planted some seeds in my consciousness. So it was familiar. It was something um, comfortable yeah. to you if you had that kind yeah, of background. Kind of, kind of. My parents didn't garden, you know, so it, it, in the house I lived in, we didn't have a garden. But at my father's father's house, there always was a garden. So, yeah, it was in my experience. And, you know, I had great love and respect for my grandfather. So I think the probably the warm feelings of the times I was in the garden with him, you know, probably transferred to, to what I'm doing now. So I think that has something to do with it. But also, I think uh, even my initial interest in food really had to do with my own health and diet. And so that's kind of, you know, how I, I didn't even know there was a food movement. But, you know, I heard Malcolm X talking about how the African-American diet was Im impacted by slavery and how many of the foods that we considered soul foods were really the cast off parts that, you know, we tried to make the best we could and, and created delicacies from them. Yeah, we didn't you know, do too but, bad. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but, you know, but some of those things don't have the, the best health impact. So, so that was kind of how I started on the food journey, just looking at how I can improve my own personal health and, and eat a diet that, you know, enabled me to have longevity in the, in the movement. Uh, then later, much later, I found out there was this thing called a food movement where people were striving for food justice and sovereignty and all these kind of things. Was it hard to get people to buy into what you were trying to do? Um, just because it, it is so hard to get people that have struggled, uh, especially in Detroit, where it seems like there's complete abandonment by the government. Well, so first of all, there's, it's not my vision. <laughs> let me let me say that. One of the things I was just actually on a phone call just before this with the editor of a magazine and she was apologizing to me because it was a story that I was quoted in. But the accompanying the story is a picture of me. And so uh, she said, I know you don't like centering yourself. So I'm calling to apologize to you. And, and so I, I don't, because nothing that I'm involved in doing is an individual effort. Everything that I'm involved in doing is a collective effort. So there's not, it's not a question of my vision, right? This is a question of kind of a collectively advanced vision that yes, I've had an opportunity to help shape. I've been a participant in the shaping of the vision, but it's not my vision per se. So I just wanted to, to correct that. No, that's, but, that's accurate. You're right. Okay. So okay, th there's both, you know, our, our vision and our work resonates with some people. And also with, there's some people in our community that it doesn't resonate with at all. And so I'll start with the challenging part of it, the, the ones it doesn't resonate with. So as you know, African people, people of African descent, black people, melanated people, 
however you want to describe us, um, are in the so-called Western Hemisphere primarily as a result of being uh, kidnapped to service forced laborers, enslavement. Mm -hmm. And so a large part of that enslavement would de dealt with agriculture. So we have both the, the enslavement itself, but also the thing that held enslavement in place was this brutal system of terrorism, this violence, this brutal violence that held slavery in place. And so for many black people, any discussion about farming or about land related work is colored by the trauma that we have historically uh, related to those experiences of enslavement and the brutal terrorism that held enslavement in place. On the other hand, there are many people, particularly younger people, who this idea of both greater self-reliance resonates with, mm -hmm. uh, but also there's many younger people who are concerned about justice in general. And so they're concerned about how their food choices fit into this larger question of justice and distribution of resources and how the earth is treated and all of these things. So, so there are both people that are gravitating towards our mission and our message, and there's people that still are a bit hesitant but what I found is that in the long run, the proof is in the pudding. The message is one thing, but uh, for most people, you have to show you have to show and prove, right? Right. So you put in the work and get the fruits of your labor, quite literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's one thing to discuss. You know, we're gonna create an alternative food system, and you know, and I and people can say, yeah, that's a good idea. Or, no, I don't like that idea. Or whatever. But it's another thing when people actually could come and you got like, you know, hundreds of pounds of produce that we're out of the discussion phase at that point. And so I found that's what shifts people more so than just battling over ideas, at least with most black people. That's what my experience has been, that you have to show and prove. And then when you, when the, you know, proof is in the pudding, if you, if you got it and done, people can't argue with that. Do you think that guidance, the people that are involved right now is uh, a, big component as to why this project has been so successful versus I know Detroit's had a, a long history of urban farming and it, it kind of comes and then it wanes when the economy gets better. But this seems to just continue to grow. Do you think that leading from behind and getting so many people involved is uh, a part of why it's been so successful? Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the grassroots nature of the work in Detroit is certainly a part of why it's been successful. And the fact that Detroit has this long history of being a movement town, in addition to, you know, so there's several things converging. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. So you have this history of Detroit being a movement town. When I say a movement town, I mean both in the Black Freedom Movement, Detroit has had a prominent place in every major organization, starting from the Universal Negro Improvement Association with Marcus Garvey. The Nation of Islam was formed in Detroit. The Republic of New Africa was formed in Detroit. Any organization in the civil rights movement uh, had a major presence in Detroit, as well as the labor uh, struggles. Both the, the union movement you know, has a strong presence in Detroit, and then you have this radical black labor movement uh, that was uh, most uh, exemplified by the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. All of this comes out of Detroit. And so Detroit has this strong kind of revolutionary history. 
And then combined with the fact that there's so much vacant land in Detroit and there was so much opportunity for gardening. And, you know, there's a whole history of why, uh, you know, the factors that contributed to that. But those two things kind of converged, I think. And so in Detroit, we have to some degree the politi politicization, is pronouncing that word. Yeah, I know y'all know what I'm saying, <laughs> of, of the agricultural movement. So, so you know, we don't do, we're not just talking about, you know, let's plant some kale over here. You know, part of our discussion is always, how does this relate to empowerment? How does this relate to, you know, to furthering our analysis of capitalism and the system of white supremacy? You know, I think we've been, you know, maybe, maybe more so than in some other places, been able to kind of merge the radical politic with the, um, with the urban agriculture. That leads me to my next question. Do you have any trouble with bureaucracy and red tape when it comes to getting access to lots? Or do you, do you find that you have to jump through hoops to get this thing going when it comes to dealing with the government? Uh, well, let me say for our organization, we don't really, we don't, we're not farming on lots. What, what we do is we have a seven acre farm. It's in a city park. We have an agreement with the city to use this section of the park for the farm. There are many other people who are farming on vacant lots in the city. I just wanted to clarify where we plug into that. Okay, I wasn't sure if you... As an individual, also, I do farm on a vacant lot next to my house. And then next to that lot, my son owns a house. And then there's another vacant lot next to him that we farm on. So on an individual basis, I do. Uh, on a collective basis, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, that's not what we do. So first, let me say from an individual basis, I've been trying to buy the lot next door to my house, and there's been a tremendous amount of delay, I'll put it like that. Now, in all fairness, most of the delay was caused by COVID. Sure. Uh, so it's kind of an unusual time. Maybe the process would have moved smoother and quicker had it not been for COVID. But I've heard from many local farmers who are trying to acquire land that they've had difficulties. So if you if it's a lot directly next door to a house that you own, and this is the caveat, and that the current the taxes are current on, then you can buy that lot next to you for two hundred dollars. But if it's a lot across the street, that's a whole nother situation. So the side lot program has provided some people with access to lots, but if it's not the lot next to your house, with the taxes being current, then the chances of you getting uh, access to city-owned property is much more much more difficult. Okay, so it's, it still sounds like there's work to be done. Oh, there's a ton of work to be done in regard to land acquisition and even how the city sees land. And when I say the city, you know, this the city is not one person and doesn't have one unified view. Mm -hmm. But I, I think I'm generalizing and saying that I think most people within the city government who work in the parts of the government that deal with how land is disposed of, I'll put, I'll put it like that. Mm -hmm. I think most people probably have the view that one land is a commodity and that there's a certain dollar value attached to this land. And, in a, and they're correct within the context of a capitalist system, that is correct, that there's a certain dollar value attached to the land and so as they're thinking about who gets the land, they're thinking about, you know, what brings the greatest dollar into the city of Detroit. The problem with that is that if you only proceed from that paradigm, then the logical conclusion that leads you to 
is that most of the land that's available to be bought is going to be bought by people who are wealthier, who have more money, because that's who you're going after. You're going after the people who have more money, who can build things that bring in more money. And so that creates a replication of the same kind of disparities that we see, because the average person in our community doesn't have the wherewithal to purchase the land and, and the people who are wealthier are in a better position to purchase it. And the city is courting them more because their idea of how development takes place is a top-down idea. That if you get rich people to build stuff, for example, can we cuss on this podcast? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay, good. good. So we have this fuck shit stadium in Detroit, uh, a hockey arena. arena. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, some people, some black people play hockey and some black people like hockey. But overwhelmingly, though, hockey, and particularly in Detroit, is a white sport. Mm-hmm. And so so the city sold land to this family, the Illich family, that also owns the Detroit Tigers and owns many of the entertainment venues in downtown Detroit. Okay. They sold the land to build this new stadium. And at a pittance, I mean, some of the land they got for a dollar, right? Because the city's idea is that if we build this big edifice- It's going to generate more money. It's going to generate more money. We'll have people come in from the suburbs and spend money, and then they'll spend money at the restaurants nearby, which are also owned by the same people. Of course. Right? Then it'll create jobs, and it'll be good for Detroit because then people in the neighborhoods can come and get a job working in the kitchen at the restaurant making a few dollars. But then they can't afford to live in Detroit. You know, it's just the logic of it is crazy. So that's what we need to, to reverse. And, and be, you know, we need city officials and people in these positions to see the value of bottom up development. Right. We don't need some saviors to come in and save us. You know, we need to give access to resources to the people in community who have a vision of what the future can be so that they can manifest that vision. I don't know if I answered the question you were asking or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually excited that uh, a couple of the things you said, because, you know, our podcast has been pretty focused on this idea of what comes after the system that we're in isn't sustainable, as you know. But usually that's like a subject we have to tiptoe around a little bit because people don't want to talk about it. But you, you seem to be very open to just uh, addressing it up front <laughs> that capitalism is a big part of why things are falling apart and that that's a part yeah. of why Detroit more is where it is. Of, more than part of it. <laughs> not more than part of it. Yeah. The cause that, of. Yeah. Sure. So I'm really happy that you brought these concerns up. And I guess I want to ask, like, how do you envision making progress in Detroit with while also directly challenging that idea of gentrification coming into the city? It's almost like you write your own death note in capitalism by being successful in a community especially a marginalized community. Uh, so you were breaking up again. And I, I sorry, part of it, I think I heard enough to be able to respond to it. Okay. And I'll start by saying that I don't see the destiny of Detroit's majority population, black folks, only within the context of the Detroit experience or only within the context of the Michigan experience or the U.S. experience. And So I think we need a longer view of uh, how we get to to liberation and what that what that looks like. So on on the way to that, you know, there's things that we have to deal with to try to make sure, you know, we're we're not being mistreated and the conditions are 
fair and just that we're faced with. But that's not the objective. The, the objective is to get to the point where we're in a position where we're actually in control of our own lives. And so gentrification is an outgrowth of capitalism. And let, let me be very clear, especially since you said I can cuss. I, I love the word fuck shit. So I'm getting ready to say that again. Probably. Capitalism, capitalism is some fuck shit. Absolutely. The first thing is it's rooted in Eurocentric, the Eurocentric experience. Okay. And so it's tied at the at the hip to cap, to to white supremacy. It is in many ways an outgrowth of colonialism of the colonialism that Europeans are accidentally almost infected the rest of the world with. Maybe that is a good word to use. I mean, they call it, they call it imperialism, but what's the difference? And, you know, I don't want to go into great detail about all that, but, you know, we, I think probably, you know, most of the listeners know that history. So it's rooted in exploitation of black and brown people and uh, the, the development that the West so-called Western world has seen is directly tied to the, extraction of resources and labor from black and brown people. And so there's a direct inverse relationship. In fact, Walter Rodney in his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, talked about the exact degree to which Europe is, is overdeveloped is the exact degree to which Africa is underdeveloped. And so capitalism continues to create these vast disparities in wealth and access. And again, because it's tied at the hip with white supremacy, uh, the people who are in the, that's not to say all white people benefit from capitalism, but all the people who benefit from capitalism the most are white. Right. You know, right. There might be one or two, maybe one or two exceptions somewhere. But for the most part, it's white, wealthy white men who are the, the real capitalist. The average white person, although they derive some benefit from being in a white supremacist system, uh, certainly capitalism doesn't serve the, the average white person well either. Uh, so capitalism continues to create these vast disparities in wealth and power. So what happens is that the capitalists, those who have who the power has been amassed in their hands, generally try to suppress the efforts of the majority when the majority realize, well, this is some fuck shit. Right. You know, and why, why they got all the toys? And then invariably people start standing up. And then when people start standing up, then the the 1% try to find ways to suppress us. I see gentrification, to get back to your question, within that kind of larger context, right? So it's a it's a logical outgrowth of capitalism. And so what we need to be doing is figuring out how do we not just make life better on the plantation, but how do we dismantle the plantation? And I'm trying to use language that's a little palatable and doesn't wind me up with some with some problems. I feel like <laughs> It's fair. So I think this is really interesting. I used to run a nonprofit that did some areas focused on urban development, food systems and things like that. And, you know, the, the common thread in any nonprofit that I've ever talked to has always been this idea of trying to put yourself out of a job. Like th that's the goal of a nonprofit is that you don't want to need to exist anymore. But it seems like that's kind of the opposite direction you guys have been going in, in the sense that you're not trying to alleviate the problems, but create a real solution so that those problems can't exist anymore as long as this system is put in place, which I think is really interesting and kind of goes back to that idea of like dual power, direct democracy, and the ability of community organization to challenge the systems that exist around us. 
I believe you were a principal or a vice principal before. I was a principal. It, was that a, a big component into how you got involved in this type of work and kind of the direction these projects have taken? Certainly that influenced it. Uh, but again, for me, all of this is kind of part of the same, you know, it's all, it's all the same thing. It's all part of this uh, let's get free project. So one aspect of it is challenging the Eurocentric domination of our minds and the, you know, the way that American public education proceeds in order to dumb us down and make us obedient and compliant and look at the world through a Eurocentric lens where we think that white people are the greatest thing since sliced bread. So moving forward with this vision that, that we have collectively, this is all inclusive for everybody. I know we've been talking about white supremacy and black and brown people everywhere are being exploited. But moving forward, this concept seems like it's not necessarily the one size fits all piece, but it seems like everybody should have the opportunity to make a community for themselves. Where do you see the future in those those race lines are erased where we can do this side by side without having to talk about um, our past history and how it still affects our present and future? Yeah, so I think we need to be doing both simultaneously. And I'll, I'll say that I've decided without apology that the vast majority of my work is focused directly on the black community. Absolutely. That's not to say that I don't recognize that, that many of the problems that we face are faced by other groups as well. Capitalism doesn't just you know, impact black people negatively and even white supremacy doesn't just impact black people negatively, it impacts other people of color negatively and white people negatively sure. for that matter. So you know, it's not, the idea is not to live in a bubble as if uh, we don't interact with the rest of the human family, because certainly I'm an advocate of doing that. Right. So I, I think we can do both simultaneously. I think that we can build power within Black communities, Black and Brown communities, and we can have a sharp critique of the system of white supremacy and a pro-Black self-determination uh, stand, while at the same time building harmonious, uh, meaningful relationships with any human beings of goodwill who want to uh, work together to make the earth a better place. That's kind of, that's where I'm at. Absolutely. And I feel like that's one part of the message that is assumed, but it's never actually stated because there is that inherent, uh, like you said, attached at the hip between capitalism and white supremacy. But it's not that we just want to be free of it. We would like everybody to be free of all sorts of oppression. Yeah, absolutely. And thank, thank you for broadening perhaps the conversation a bit. And, you know, maybe... Like you say, people assume that maybe when they hear me, for example, talking strongly for black liberation, that that means that I'm not for the liberation of everybody. But I, you know, I don't function from that assumption. I, fun I function from the assumption that those things are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, that we need a, a vision for how to advance black people, which is situated within a global vision of how humanity advances as a whole. Absolutely. And I do think that's a part of uh, the bigger conversation. I'm, I'm glad you actually put words to it. So thank you. The more we talk, the more questions I have. With the project that you're doing, I think what's just so amazing about it is that the ability to keep people engaged with it for such a long period of time in terms of the fact that this project has been growing and being sustainable. And I know not everyone is a fan, I've read a bit about folks that have tried to come in and they can't compete with your model because they're thinking in that capitalist lens. And I think that's really interesting and speaks to, I guess, that the direct involvement of the community in trying to 
create sustainable systems outside of the sphere of capitalism. Um, while we can't really ever totally detangle from it, you guys seem to be doing a really good job of that. And uh, I was just, I'm really curious how you keep that that drive going and getting and keeping people, I guess, involved. Like I saw you have like educational components and all of these different things. It just, it, it seems so encompassing. First of all, I'm not sure that we detangled ourselves from capitalism. I wish I could say we had. Yeah, I mean, not like fully, but I think you're showing a, a vision, even if it's just kind of an outline of what yeah. can exist in place of it. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair char- characterization. Going going back uh, again, this for for in Detroit, you know, Detroit has this history, and, and so every every place has its specific history. Detroit has this radical history as a movement town, and so our work is seated in that. And I, you know, I want to continue to to say that one of the reasons I think our group has had some degree of success is because myself and the other uh, leaders of the organization, even prior to being involved in gardening, already had some degree of respect in the community because of decades of work in the community. So we didn't just drop in and say, we wanna start a garden. We'd already been working in the community on other things, the school, for example. Hundreds of students came through this school, this African-centered school over the 22 years that I ran it. And so many thousands of people, thousands of black people in Detroit knew about this school and you know, saw me and people who were affiliated with the school as being legitimate community leadership. That legitimacy that we already had when we entered into the food sphere is what has enabled us to galvanize people around these ideas and around the work and, and continue the work moving forward. But also having said that, I also don't wanna paint an overblown picture because you know, there's 750,000 people in Detroit or 675,000 or so people in Detroit, Mm -hmm. we have about 150 of those who are members of our organization, right? So that's a small fraction of the whole percentage of the city. And then of those 150, it's an even smaller percentage who are actually actively involved in the organization. So I don't wanna give this overblown notion because sometimes people looking from afar, you know, they see stuff on Facebook and, you know, and we post all the good stuff on Facebook. (laughs) You, know, you don't post the shit that went wrong on Facebook. <laughs> right. So, so people see and they're like, oh, man, they really, they got a great, they got a fantastic. And that's not to any way belittle what we're doing because it is great. It is, you know, incredible work, but it's not perfect work. And, you know, I, I, I adhere to the philosophy of Amilcar Cabral, one of the leaders of the revolution in Getting Basal, who said, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. Mm-hmm. So I think we do ourselves a disservice by painting these rosy pictures you know, no, this shit is not all rosy. You know, we've made some progress, but we've had a lot of uh, setbacks. You know, we have challenges, we have external challenges, we have internal contradictions. So I just want to lift all that up and say it's not some rosy path where we figured it all out and we're dancing down the road to, to Black food sovereignty. Sure. So you mentioned uh, the population numbers of the city. Do you think with that small percentage, do you see any way forward in getting that community into the city government or any future where you can sort of fight from the inside rather than trying to David and Goliath the whole time? How, how do you see the organization? Because it, it's got to be governed if there's that many people. How do you see that moving forward and sort of getting involved in the city of Detroit itself? Uh, I don't know that uh, we'll get involved in electoral politics at all as an organization, frankly. 
And I'm not personally opposed to electoral politics. I think it can be a uh, part of a larger strategy if thoughtfully used, mm-hmm. you know, some serious limitations to it. And we need to know what the limitations are, what we can get out of it, what we're not going to get out of it and use it wisely. But I don't think, I don't see DBCFSN getting into electoral politics one way or the other. And I don't think the food movement in Detroit has galvanized politically to the point where they could say we have a platform and there's certain candidates that we're going to run who support our positions. I'm hopeful that at some point in the future, and I'm in discussions with some people, that there may be some galvanizing of some of the progressive forces in Detroit, not just people doing urban agriculture, but people doing all kinds of progressive justice work into some formation that could allow us to actually run people for office and win those offices. Hell yeah. I was going to actually ask uh, what the relationship was. I know there's a couple of different organizations in Detroit doing um, not necessarily similar things, but uh, around that idea of food sovereignty. Is there like a, a board that you guys or is it just kind of an informal you guys are familiar with the other organizations that exist out there and that's kind of it? Yes. And Yes and no, maybe I'll say that. So we created uh, the Detroit Food Policy Council in 2009 and it continues to exist. And so in some ways that serves as an umbrella for people involved in what we could loosely call food movement work in the city of Detroit. Not, not as strong as I would like, but uh, it is kind of a connecting point. But many of us have relationships outside of that. In fact, I would say most of the people involved in growing particularly those who are growing on larger scales are in, you know, fairly frequent communication and, and cooperation with each other. Awesome. Um, and that's, that's across so-called race, frankly, you know, there are some efforts in our organization often leads efforts that are particularly focused on organizing black farmers for particular things, but we also have very good relationships and cooperative relationships with most of the progressive white farmers in Detroit as well. Do you feel that that it's possible for what you guys that you're doing to be um, done on the citywide scale, even if it wasn't run by your organization, but uh, other small nonprofits and things like that? Well, there's many other groups doing this work in the city of Detroit. I mean, our organization is just one. And so, again, we have cordial and often cooperative relationships with the other groups doing the work. So we're not trying to be the biggest, baddest nonprofit in Detroit where we got three, four farms, and we're controlling the whole situation. That's not what we're trying to do. I mean, we got, our, yeah, we got our thing that we're handling. And for some things, we refer people to other farms. Some of the farms we cooperate and do things together with. So it's more like trying to create an ecosystem that the whole community can benefit from rather than our organization spreading out and trying to be, you know, cover the whole city. You know, there's other doing so that's more the approach that we're taking yeah i I guess my question really is do you think what you're doing in terms of like the uh, urban gardening is something that could be done on a scale big enough for the entire city of detroit to make food grown locally within the entire the the entire city of detroit the the city lines okay uh, so let me uh, first uh, and and my comment was just to make sure i understand your question so when you say we I guess what I was trying to clarify, who, who the we is that you're referring to. If you're referring to our organization, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, no, I don't think that we will grow enough food to service people in the city of Detroit. If you're referring to the ecosystem of yes. growers collectively, yes, yes. 
I think we have great potential. I'll put it like that. In fact, studies have shown that uh, we could grow up to with the existing vacant land, I think up to 50% or maybe even higher than that of the, uh, of the fruits and vegetables consumed by Detroiters in the city of Detroit. That, that would require a huge repurposing of a lot of vacant land in the city of Detroit. But as a, as a, a benchmark, I think many of us hold more like 10%. If we can get to 10% uh, now, and we're probably at about three or 4%, if we could get to 10% of the produce being consumed by Detroiters being actually grown in Detroit, that would be an important milestone. Absolutely. That'd be awesome. So one other question I wanted to bring up, uh, or ask rather, uh, is in regards to an interview you gave actually on Fox 2. Uh, and I'm going to quote you to yourself. <laughs> um, people have been shocked into a new awareness by seeing empty grocery store shelves, by seeing hundreds of people lined up at food banks, and people are realizing how fragile the current food system is and they're seeing disparities, end quote. Uh, and that was in regards to um, when COVID struck and all the grocery stores got a run on them and there was no new food coming in. Uh, I guess that's kind of one of the highlights or focus areas of this podcast is like how fragile the system is. Did anything change for the organization when this happened? Did people realize what you were doing was more important or were they uh, scared away because of the COVID conditions? Uh, like what, what kind of impact did that have on the community that you're so woven into? Yeah, so a couple of things happened. And one, let me let me put you within some context. So in March and April of last year, Michigan was the state with the third highest rates of infection and third highest rate of death in the country. The county that I live in, Wayne County, was the county in the state with the highest levels of infections and deaths. Damn. The city that I live in, Detroit, was the city in the county with the highest number of, of deaths and infections. Um, and so Detroit was being hit tremendously hard. It's hard now even to imagine how hard Detroit, Detroit was hit. But I'll just say on my Facebook timeline in March and April, almost every day there were three, four, five people that either I knew directly or people I knew knew who were dying from COVID. It was hitting Detroit tremendously hard. We adjusted to it in a couple of ways. One, we actually decided for a month to close our farm down altogether. And I was an advocate of that. And frankly, I got a lot of criticism for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I won't say that, you know, I, I don't think there's any absolute right or wrong. So, you know, I made a judgment. Other people made a judgment. They saw it differently. But at the height of the pandemic, when Detroit was just being smacked, I had made the decision and recommended to our board, which affirmed the decision that I was advocating that because we didn't have health insurance for the people working at the farm, number one, and number two, it was my observation in the days prior to the farm actually being closed that the, we had some restrictions in place then about distancing and masks and gloves, but it was my observation that people were not taking that seriously. Mm -hmm. And also in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we didn't have as much information as we have now. So there were a lot of people saying, oh, it doesn't even exist then. It's fake and this, you know, and some people still think that, I don't know. But so because of that, I don't think we can ensure the safety of, of our people working at the farm. And so uh, I recommend to the board, we shut down for a month, which we did. 
from um, March 23rd until April 20th. And we reopened on April 20th, still with very strict protocols in place. And we finished the season. We up, upgraded those protocols a couple of times as the pandemic lessened. And, you know, it became more liberal as the year went on. But our main concern was ensuring the safety of the people working at the farm, as well as the safety of the public. The other way it impacted us is normally we move most of our produce at farmers markets. And the two main farmers markets that we sell at didn't open last year because of COVID. The third main way we did we sell our produce is by people coming to our farm and we have a farm stand set up in front of the farm on Saturdays and Sundays. We deemed that it wasn't safe to do that in the way we had done in the past. And so we eliminated that and shifted to an online ordering platform. And I talked earlier about some of the cooperation between farms. We actually worked with another farm, Oakland Avenue Farm, to create this online ordering platform where people could pay, order and pay online and come to either of our farms and put curbside contactless pickup. Now, again, it's not a perfect solution because some people don't have internet access and you know we're still working through it and trying to find ways that even in a pandemic to make sure that we can you know make sure people have fresh healthy food so we were to succinctly answer your question we were balancing two considerations one yes we did get lots more calls because people were more aware of the need for this kind of alternative more localized more resilient food system so people were calling us about starting gardens and about getting food from our farm and on the other hand we were balancing the safety considerations for the public and for the staff that works at the farm we also did a couple other things, and maybe I'll end by saying this, that normally we have lots of volunteers at our farm who learn about farming by working side by side with us. And so it wasn't safe to do that either. And so we shifted, instead of trying to get people to come to us, we kind of decentralized and created a program where we gave away 100 raised beds we gave, and topsoil and compost. We gave away packets of seeds to 100 families uh, we made eight instructional videos so that people could now do the work in a smaller, safer way at their own homes rather than coming to us. Awesome. That's, uh, a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very accessible way. For folks that do want to support what you're doing, uh, what, what's the best way to do that? Well, if folks are in Detroit, you know, we want folks to be active with us, you know, and actually have boots on the ground. Uh, and they can volunteer at the farm when we open up on, on March 20th this year, uh, Saturday, March 20th. And we're open for volunteers every Saturday and Sunday morning from nine o'clock, I'm sorry, from eight o'clock until noon on both of those days. And if people are willing to adhere to our COVID protocols to make sure that everyone is safe, they are welcome to come out and volunteer at our farm. So that would be one way people could support. The other way, we didn't really talk about this grocery store that we're developing, the Detroit People's Food Co-op, but we're developing a, a major grocery store that is owned by community members. We currently have 1,150 member owners of it. We're expecting to begin construction. We're doing a new building. We're expecting to begin construction between April and July of this year and expecting to open the cooperatively owned grocery store next spring. So people can become member owners of the Detroit People's Food Co-op. And it costs $200 a one-time fee to become a member owner. They can join the co-op by going to the co-op's website, which is www.DetroitPeoplesFoodCoop.com. Again, that's www.DetroitPeoplesFoodCoop.com. 
peoplesfoodcoop.com. For the farm, if folks want to uh, 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 volunteer at the farm or want more information on the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network in general, they should go to our website, which is www.dbcfsn.org. Again, that's dbcfsn.org for information on the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. So although we initiated and, and spearheaded the Detroit People's Food Co-op, it now is its own entity. It's kind of an affiliated entity, but it has its own board, its own website, its own bank account. Uh, so we're almost at the finish line for that project, which we think is going to be a game changer in Detroit. Awesome. Excellent. Sounds amazing. And for our younger podcast listeners who are wondering how they're going to survive in this capitalist system that we live in, would you encourage the younger generations to go ahead and try to clone this model in their own communities uh, moving forward? Is there any warnings or caveats you'd like to give to them or any words of inspiration to keep them going when things are not going as, uh, as planned? You know, one of the things that I've come to realize is that you have to be dedicated to what's right and just regardless. Regardless. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and that it's kind of like, you know, in martial arts, you've seen people punch through bricks, you know, they, they come back and they, you know, but before they even throw that punch, what's happening is they're seeing their hand on the other side of that brick. The visualization. Seeing, visualization. So we have to do the same thing. We have to use the power that we have to visualize and then make that visualization manifest in the physical world. And so... So that's kind of what keeps me going, you know, being able to continually see that power to visualize and manifest, actually manifesting and seeing progress. So that's what keeps me going. But even at the at the tough points, just knowing that this is a, a protracted struggle and that there's ups and downs and that, uh, you know, generally what we want to see is a trajectory going up. But there will be, you know, there'll be moments there when we need encouragement. And really, that's why it's important to be in community, too, because we both reflect and encourage each, each other. Absolutely. And progress is the main goal. And that's, I feel like that's what you're doing. Um, and it's a, it's a great example. And I think everybody can look to it. And I'm really glad we did this uh, interview. If I can add one more thing before we end, just in terms of advice to activists. And this is something I'm just learning in recent years. Sure. And that's regarding self-care. I jokingly posted on Facebook uh, two days ago, a video from this uh, group, Sweet Honey in the Rock, that sings songs that come from the civil rights movement. And they sang a song that's a tribute to Ella Baker. Um, and it's, the words are, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. And in many ways that characterizes the work ethic of the generation that I come from. Mm -hmm. We had the work ethic that you put your nose to the grindstone 24 seven. And if you let up, you're a traitor to the people. And then I started meeting younger activists who were talking about, you know, going scuba diving and playing you know, hockey, class, playing hockey. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was like, damn, you can do this shit and still be revolutionary. And so so it really expanded, you know, expanded my understanding. This is because this is a protracted struggle. You have to prioritize your self-care so that you can stay in it. You know, you don't want to burn out after a year, two, three years. You want to be in it. 20, 30, 40, a lot, really it's a lifetime commitment. Sure. And so to have a certain level of health 
and internal peace in order to stay in it for the long term. And so prioritizing your own self-care, uh, you know, not becoming some, you know, self-centered, you know, type person, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, you, because you can go to the extreme with that too. Absolutely. But I, I think a lot of people are learning that uh, during this pandemic too, that self-care is important for uh, your mind and your body and what would follow is your spirit. So um, that's definitely important to keep in mind. But I know your work isn't easy. And I, I just wanted to get a little bit of insight from uh, how you keep going. I know it is um, an internal passion for most people. Um, but the visualization part is key. And I think people, if they collectively stay focused on making uh, their community stronger and their relationships within the community stronger, they'll see uh, there is a better way to live than the current way that we have now. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. So thank, you so much. thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. We've got a bunch of interviews coming up in the next couple months, and we want to continue growing those. And we can only do that with your iTunes reviews as a reference point to show how successful we are. So please, if you did enjoy this interview, give us a review so we can get some more people on here. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. And this is Andy. This is Elliot with the Pork Rolls Almanac. You're like a dirty pole. Like you got literally just like like farm dirt. <laughs> <laughs>